Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and be in class of prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your truth, for the way you run your universe. We ask that you will send your spirit to lighten our minds. May your angels watch over us, and may you guide us in our discussion. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Welcome. Our lesson today is that they may all be one which is the third lesson in the uh, quarterly Oneness in Christ. And the memory verse is John 17, 20, and 21. And this is out of the New King James, and it says, I do not pray for these alone, but, for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, may, they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What's another word for being one. Atone. Atone. That's right. In the old King James English in 1611, when they were translating into English, there was a verb in those days, O-N-E. We have a noun, the number one O-N-E. That's a noun. But it was not only a noun in 1611, it was also an action word. So if two people were arguing at odds, we could say, I'm going to go one them, bring them back into oneness. Okay. And it soon turned into, I'm going to go make them at one. But it was pronounced in the Old English, a tone, just like when you're all by yourself, you're not all one, you're alone. So it's pronounced a tone. So I'm going to go atone them, bring them back into unity. And the process of bringing people back into unity or oneness is called atonement or atonement. That's what it's called. So what is the problem today? If we're talking about oneness in Christ. We're actually talking about atone or atonement. What is the problem that keeps human beings from being at one with God and each other. What's the problem? Uh, you're exactly right. So let me ask you this question. This, 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 this series of questions may help us understand. Is the problem that causes division, fragmentation, separation from God and each other found in God? No. Is it found in God's law? No. Where is the problem that causes this fragmentation and separation found? Okay, so if you conclude that the problem that's causing the fragmentation is in us, is that problem, what is that problem? Why would you describe it? Is the problem with us that causes fragmentation, separates us from God, separates us from each other, is that problem a historical record of deeds recorded in a book in heaven somewhere? Is that what's really doing? We get rid of that record, somehow erase it with magical blood, then we're all united. No. Is that where the problem is? In some book somewhere? No. Broken relationship. Terminal condition. Terminal condition. Broken relationship. The problem is, as you say, in us. Would you say then the problem is something wrong with our actual heart motives, our thinking, our desires, our methods? Uh, something's broken inside us and in how we operate that causes fragmentation and division. Would you say that's possible? Okay. Then, if if that's where the problem is, and this problem actually in our hearts and minds, what would the function of the atonement be? The action of God to bring us to one, where where would the function of the action be taking place? Would Would it be taking place in heaven in a courtroom? In books? One member of the Godhead on another member of the Godhead, which is taught constantly in Christianity. Or would there be activity of the divine triune God working in the hearts and minds 
of human beings. To heal. To heal, to restore, yes. And so the work of Christ in the atonement, if you actually want to achieve unity, when you understand that the, what's causing the fragmentation, what's causing the separation is not in God, it's not in God's law, it's actually in us, then the action of Christ has to be, to, to, the, the fo- focal point has to be in us. To be effectual in bringing unity, it has to be in us. Does that make sense? So I, I had a quote out of the book Desire of Ages, and think about the meaning of what this author says about, about the work of Christ. This is out of page 671. The sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. What do you hear being described there? Where's, where's the activity happening according to this author? Between the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Between the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And, and what does it mean to make effectual? What's that mean? To make something effectual. To, to make it work. To actually have the outcome, to cause the, the change that you're looking for. And so according to this author, do you agree that what Jesus wrought out in his life only becomes effective for remission of sin, for atonement, for bringing us to one, when the Spirit applies it inside the heart of a believer? If the Spirit doesn't apply it in the heart, it has no effect. Is that fair to say? Which heart? Heart and mind of any who trust God and open their heart to him. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I'll write my law on your heart and mind. I'll take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh. I'll circumcise your heart by your spirit. So it's in the heart of the sinner that the Holy Spirit is working to bring what Christ achieved to bear so that we get new hearts and right spirits. We become like Christ in motive and, 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 and action. So what this means is that Christ achieved the remedy, and we'll talk about that in just a moment to our condition, and the Holy Spirit administers that in us. Does that make sense? So sin, I don't know if you know this, but it causes, it causes in the sinner fear and shame. Did you know that? And what does fear and shame cause an individual to do? When you're feeling fear and shame, what happens inside that person? Do we have unity? Or do we get fragmentation and division and separation? See, fear and shame cause us to live this fragmented, divided life because we anticipate rejection. We live in the fear that if somebody actually knew my secret stuff, they would hate me, they would stone me. And so we come to church with our masks on. We come to church purporting. And so when somebody tells us, I love you, there's no unity in that love. Why? Because the person is wearing a mask and in their internal world, they go, you love what I'm pretending to be. You don't even know me. You can't love me. And you really can't experience the unity of love until you actually bear yourself 
to someone. And this is what we all fear to do. This is why the 12-step groups have historically been much more healing to the addicts and the alcoholics in churches. Because the 12-step group, somebody going, Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. And the 12-step group says, Welcome, Joe. Tell us about your story. We love you. We hate what alcohol is doing to your life. We love you. We hate what alcohol... How many think what, what happened at any church, I don't care denomination, where the head deacon or the head elder comes into their Sunday school or Sabbath school class and says, Hey, I'm elder so-and-so, and I've been looking at porn this week. We'd say, Welcome, elder so-and-so. We love you. Or would they be, we've got to have a board meeting, you've got to be removed from office. <laughs> so, so can he come and be open and experience Christian love and healing, the strength of the community help put him back on track, or does he have to wear a mask? And then when people say, I love you, he goes, you don't even know me. I live in fear of you. And we're fragmented and we're divided. Look, look what happened to Judge Kavanaugh this last two weeks. I'm not prom- promoting him or against him. It's not the question. Would you want to be in his shoes and go through with what he went through? It's a sickness that we're in right now. Yes. But that that change and transformation can only happen if the individual is willing to acknowledge the need and be open to change. Yes. And, And yes, absolutely. And so you have to be humbled, come to recognize there's something wrong in you. Jesus said, I didn't come for the well, I came for those who are sick of heart. So yes, you have to, have to know that. Um, God's healing, love, and truth must be experienced. Thus, notice, when Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid and naked, shamed. They didn't want to be seen. They did not want to be seen in their condition. They wanted to hide, and they had fig leaves to hide their condition. They wanted to wear that mask, make themselves look better than their true condition. Did you see, can you see that? And so God calls out not to frighten them. Where are you? Okay. And then, well, I hid because I was naked. And then notice God's question to him. Who told you you were naked? Now get, get your, get contextual here. At that time in human history on the earth and in this conversation, what are the options? (laughs) Who told you? (laughs) there's an implication in the question coming from god and the implication in the question was you didn't hear it from me i'm not the one who said this to you i'm not finding fault with you that's coming from your own condition now What you've done has changed you. You have condemned yourself. You feel ashamed. You feel guilty. I'm here to heal you. You don't need to be afraid of me. Notice, immediately Adam and Eve are more afraid of God, who is seeking to heal them, than they are of their own condition, which is already killing them. And this is much of Christianity today. People live in fear of God, who only wants to heal and restore, rather than the sin in their life that keeps them fearful and shamed. The woman caught in adultery, drug out before Christ. After he dispatches the crowd, he says, where are your accusers? Again, what's the implication? I'm not accusing you. You're not hearing it from me, even though I know all that you just did. Okay, And she experienced love and grace. She knew that he saw her and still loved her, didn't reject her, didn't condemn her. And he said, 
Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now, some of the languages go and sin no more. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means this, guys. I know where you just were. I know what you were just doing. Had you not been caught and brought in before me, you're t- here's how your day would have gone. You would have snuck home with your head covered, hanging low, feeling guilt, feeling shame, feeling dirty, feeling nasty, feeling ugly, feeling unworthy, afraid of relationships, afraid that you're going to be rejected, afraid you're going to be found out. That's what your day would have been like. That's what every day would have been like for you. I don't need to condemn you because your actions were, cha- were injuring you and you were being condemned in your own heart and mind. Now go and live in harmony with my design for relationships, how I built things to run. Don't continue doing this to yourself. It's brilliant stuff. It's beautiful. And, it only, and she was a new person after that. She was the one who came and anointed his feet later with the oil and was criticized, if you remember. And Christ protected her. She's doing a good thing. Why? What, what, was the, what was the issue for her? She was loved. And in the, in the place where she was exposed for who she really was. How many of you, think about the fear that you would have if somebody knew all your secret stuff. And this is what church is supposed to be, where we bear one another's burdens. Where it's safe to come in and say, you know, I used to struggle with that, or I am struggling with this. And we go, we love you, and we hate to see you being injured by your struggles. How can we help you? Yes. But somebody already does know all your secret stuff, and he still loves you. Yes, but, but they don't know him. Right. They know you, and you claim to be his representative. And when you go to church, and his representative said, well, you can't have these problems. You have to actually have victory of these problems. So Jesus died to pay your debt and sin, and then we'd like to baptize you. But before we can baptize you, you've got to give up your Sabbath job. You've got to give up your smoking. You've got to give up your drinking. You've got to give up the cheese. You've got to give up the jewelry. You've got to give up this. You've got to give up that. Okay. In other words, you've got to fix yourself up because you're not good enough to come to Christ like that. This is the message that's sent, and it's a lie. And some people, because of their fear of eternal torment or their fear of being punished, will that fear motivate them, like the person who's afraid of, uh, uh, has gotten some lung, a, a little nodule on their on their on their chest X-ray, and now they're afraid they might get cancer, and that fear leads them to quit smoking. Why are they doing it? Because they're afraid, not because they really want to quit, not because their heart's been changed. I know many people who've given up something based on fear. And they're looking for an angle where they can still do it and not have the consequence. Satan failed 2,000 years ago to prevent Christ from completing his mission of achieving the remedy to sin. So what strategy does Satan employ today to obstruct the atonement, obstruct the work of the Holy Spirit, taking the achievements of Christ and putting them in us so we come into the oneness that the text is telling us about? What strategy is he using? Lies about God that lead people to misdiagnose the problem as a legal problem that has a legal solution in some forum outside your heart. The problem is, I need to have a payment made in a record book in heaven and have my advocate go for the Father, plead my cause, go to the books, apply his blood, erase the record of sin, and then on the judgment day when the record books are open and they look to judge me, there's nothing there but the perfect record of Jesus and so I get a pass. But nothing's happened in here. But is your heart changed? That doesn't really matter, see? Because it's not about heart change, it's about legal pardon. That's the corruption. That's the lie. 
Therefore, I think we can see clearly that the whole penal substitution theology, which teaches that atonement is a legal process in which Jesus' blood is applied to books or to the law or to God, is a lie. It is an infection based on the idea that God's law functions no different than our law. And we will not finish this work of preparing the world until we reject that and come back to worship the creator God. First paragraph says, The Gospel of John provides us with the window into Jesus' immediate concerns as his betrayal and death loomed on the horizon. In the five crucial chapters, um, John 13 to 17, we receive Jesus' last words of the instruction culminating with what has sometimes been called his high priestly prayer. Did anybody have a, one of those little like, wait a minute moments when you read that besides me? I go, wait a minute. Anybody else go, wait a minute. I guess not. <laughs> well, I went, wait a minute. <laughs> Should this be called his high priestly prayer? I immediately had multiple concerns about that. First off, I understand why those in the penal camp call this his high priestly prayer, because it is essential in that view that we have Jesus standing between us and the Father, pleading on our behalf to protect us from the anger and the wrath of what the Father would do to us. We have to have that intercession, getting the goodness from God, because God doesn't have it in him to give himself, so we need that person to beg it off from him. That's why they see it that way. If it wasn't for that, then God would be required by his holiness and justice in their view to use his power to torture and kill us for our sin. So we have to have that person standing there. Think that through. What kind of God are we serving if we have to be protected from him? Why do I have questions about labeling this the high priestly prayer? Well, first off, it is in violation or it's inconsistent with the symbolism of the entire high priest and the old priest and Old Testament symbolism. In the Old Testament Levitical service, Jesus is represented by multiple actors to to act out multiple roles that Jesus was playing. Moses represented Jesus in his pre-incarnate state as Jesus went in before the Father, talked to the Father about the plan of salvation, left the Father's presence, came to earth. Okay, Moses went into God's presence, talked to him at the burning bush about the, about the plan to free the people. He goes in and confronts the ruler of the, of the enslaving power, overthrows his power, sets the people free, leads them out and sets up the sanctuary. So Jesus talks to God face to face in heaven, leaves heaven, comes to earth, confronts the ruler of this planet who holds us in the slavery of sin, sets the people free, and sets up his sanctuary. So Moses represents Christ in his pre-incarnate state, is the point. The lamb represents Christ during his 33 years on this planet. John the Baptist, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The lamb that was sacrificed, that's represented. And the high priest represents Christ after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Then he steps into the role of our high priest. So first off, first objection I have is, while he's praying this prayer, he's still in the role of the lamb. He's not the high priest yet. In fact, in order for the high priest to do his work in the system, what did the high priest need? He needed the blood of the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> if he didn't have the blood of the sacrificial lamb, he couldn't do his work as high priest. Now, the blood is symbolic, but what's it symbolic of? What Christ will ultimately achieve at his sacrifice. And Christ hadn't achieved it yet because he hadn't died yet, so he can't enter the role of his high priestly work because he hasn't even finished achieving what he's going to need to do the work. Does that make sense? And what is it that he needed to achieve? What is the blood symbolic of? The life is in the blood. Okay. 
So a perfect, sinless human life or character. That's what he needs to reproduce in us. And he has to develop it by the exercise of his human abilities. And so here we read in Hebrews 4.15. For though... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Or Hebrews 5, 8 through 10. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Notice this passage, it's quite profound. He didn't become the source of salvation until he was made perfect. Well, wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. But Bible perfection is not about a sinless state. Bible perfection is about a mature, perfect character that cannot be moved into sin. Adam and Eve were sinless but they were imperfect because they didn't develop a perfect character. They chose to deviate from God's design and corrupted their character. Character cannot be created by God. He can create sinless beings like Adam and Eve, like Lucifer before his fall. But character is developed by the choices of the free sentient being. Does everybody get that? And after Adam sinned, every human being on planet Earth after Adam was born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Psalms 51. We're born with motives that are like Adam and Eve's after they corrupted themselves. Fear-based, guilt-based, shame-based, me-first-based, protect-self-based, out of harmony with God's perfection. And so only somebody who partook of this humanity and restored God's design in humanity could be our Savior. So Christ came and was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And he learned as a human being, he didn't learn as a divine being, as a human being, he learned. He wasn't tempted as a divine being. He was tempted as a human being. The Bible says in James that God cannot be tempted, but Christ was tempted. He was tempted in his humanity. He overcame by the exercise of a human will, not the exercise of a divine will. And once made perfect, became the source of salvation for all who obey him and was designated to be high priest. So he wasn't the high priest until he achieved this victory. And this victory was achieved at the cross. The lamb was sacrificed. And after the sacrifice, the shed blood, which is symbolic of the perfect character and life that he just achieved as a human being, becomes what he now ministers as high priest to us. And so what is the work of the high priest in the old system? The primary work was cleansing of the sanctuary. Day of Atonement, cleansing of the sanctuary is the high priest's work. And what do you think that's symbolic of? Cleansing the hearts and minds, the spirit temple, cleansing the sanctuary from the lies about God, the selfishness, the corruption, and restoring the righteousness of Christ within. Thus, Jesus needed to finish his work on the earth in order to reveal Satan as the liar, reveal the truth of his character, and develop a perfect, sinless human character to give to us as a free gift. The penal view has the wrong diagnosis and thus has the high priest focusing and working in the wrong place, either in record books or on the Father's attitude, rather than in the hearts and minds of sinners. 
Thus far, the idea that Jesus was functioning as high priest in John 17 is not consistent with the symbolism of the sanctuary, and it contradicts Hebrews' description of, of when Jesus was designated as the high priest by his father, and it denies the need for Jesus to actually obtain the remedy to sin, which he would then wield as high priest for us. And then we read in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Notice what the role of the high priest is, to save us by intercession. Could Jesus, as our high priest, save us by his intercession without going through the cross? Could he? There's one person who was was confident enough to answer that question. No, Jesus could not save us as our high priest without going through the cross. It was a requirement to achieve what was necessary. Thus, he couldn't function as high priest without going through the cross. So his prayer in John 17 can't be a high priestly prayer. Where is the defect that causes the separation from God found? Where do we find that defect? In God, in God's law, or in humankind? In humankind. Then where is the remedy that Christ achieved to be applied? To God, to God's law, or to humankind? Okay. Then where does Christ intercede? In humankind. And in the symbolism of the sanctuary, if you remember, um, the high priest not only did the Day of Atonement, but every day the high priest would trim the wicks on the lampstands. On the lampstand. Only the high priest, morning and evening, would trim the wick. Well, what is the lampstand symbolic of? The central pillar was solid gold. That's symbolic of Christ himself. He is the gold pillar. But there were six branches that came off, and six in Bible symbolism is representative of mankind or humanity. And we are the lights to lighten the world. So that's representative of us that when we're connected to Christ, make seven, which is the number of perfection. And the little bowls on the uh, lampstand are our hearts and minds, where we are the light to lighten the world, that when we have Christ in us, we shine forth and become lights of the world. And our high priest works in our hearts to trim away, circumcise the heart from the things of the world so that we can shine more brightly for him. But there was a high priest work to work there. None of the other priests could do that. I can't work in your heart. Christ works in the heart. So the prayer of John 17 is not a high priestly prayer, but a prayer of our second Adam, the one who was struggling to, as the new head of humanity, reverse and fix what Adam did to humanity. And as the representative head of the species before God, he prays as a loving parent for all his children, asking the Father for the fulfillment of all they had previously planned to achieve for us. Sunday's first paragraph, it says, the high priestly prayer that we've just decided isn't, prayer of second Adam, the high priestly prayer is divided into three parts. First, Jesus prays for himself, then for his disciples, and finally for those who would later believe in him. The fact that Jesus prays for himself should also give some insight that this is not a high priestly prayer. People should go, wait a second, that's that's not quite right there. But it is consistent with him as the second head of humanity, uh, as a human being, praying to his father for the strength he needs to overcome and achieve what they have set out to accomplish. Perfectly sensible. Second paragraph, Jesus intercedes first for himself. In In preceding events in Gospel of John... Jesus had indicated that his hour had not yet come, but now he knows the hour of his sacrifice is here. The moment for the dramatic conclusion of his earthly life has has arrived, and he is in need of strength 
to complete the mission. It is time for prayer. What do you think of this idea that Jesus intercedes for himself? Does that even, when you hear the word intercession, does that even like, it seems still, so, you know, is, is it even possible to be in, where intercession means that you're in, in between two other people on their behalf? I looked it up in the dictionary and it says an act to interpose in behalf of someone, an attempt to reconcile differences between two people. That's what intercession is. Let me ask you, did Jesus have any differences, divisions, conflicts, fractures with his father that needed to be reconciled? Or did Jesus, in this very prayer that we are calling intercessory prayer for himself, pray that all of us would be one with God as he is already one with God? So in the very prayer, he defines that I'm not fractured from you. I don't need to be reconciled to you. I'm already one with you. This is an intercession. This is the prayer of our second Adam, understanding what he's about to achieve, needing the, prayer, the, the strength as a human being to achieve. And it's the same type of prayer I've been praying all along. He prayed with his dad regularly, uh, daily, about the ongoing strength and vision and purpose and so forth. I was wondering, maybe it would be helpful, instead of just talking about this prayer, maybe we read the prayer. So I'm going to read this prayer out of the remedy. Father, the time for the completion of my mission has come. Now bring the intention of the entire universe to your son that I may reveal your true character and government and thus bring all glory and honor to you. For you place the security of the entire universe in my hands so that all who unite with me may have eternal life. Now, eternal life is this, having an intimate knowledge of you and connection with you, the only true God, and me, Jesus Christ, your son whom you have sent. I have exalted and magnified you on earth by completing the mission you gave me. I have revealed your true character, methods, and principles, exposed Satan as a liar, and his methods of selfishness as the cause of death, and procured the remedy for sinfulness. And now, Father, bring me back to you that I might occupy my rightful place at your side, the very place I had before the world was made. I have revealed your gracious, loving, and benevolent character and methods to those you chose to be my disciples and who received this healing truth. Their hearts were loyal to you. You gave them to me to instruct and heal, and they have listened, understood, and freely chosen to follow your ways. Now they understand that everything I did was a revelation of you. For I presented the truth about you, your love and kindness, your respect for freedom of choice and truthfulness, your graciousness and constant giving of yourself for the welfare of your creation, and they wholeheartedly embraced it. They know with certainty that I am here as your ambassador with your full approval and authority. My heart yearns for them, Father, that, that, that the remedy complete its work of healing their characters. I'm not asking that the remedy heal those who have refused to take it, but I'm asking for those whom you gave me to instruct and heal, for they now love and trust you too. Our love is pure, and all I have are yours, and all you have are mine. And their transformed hearts and minds powerfully confirm that I have faithfully discharged my mission and brought them back to you. My mission here is almost complete, and I will no longer stay in this selfish world, but they will remain to carry the remedy throughout the world. I am coming to you. I am coming home to you. Holy Father, protect them from the lies and deceptions of Satan by reinforcing in their minds the truth of your character and principles, your character of love and your principles of truth and freedom that you revealed through me, so they may be unified in love, truth, freedom, purpose, motive, and righteousness of character as you and I are united. While I was with them, I protected them from the deception, from deception by constantly revealing the truth and showing them love. 
None has been lost to the infection of selfishness, except, as the scriptures foretold, Judas, who refused the remedy and whose death was the inevitable result of an impeded selfishness. I am coming home to you now, but I say these things while I am still here on earth so that they may see the importance of daily heart-searching conversation with you and experience the full joy that comes from constant unity with you. I have given them the truth about you, but the selfish world hates them because they have the antidote to fear and selfishness and are not in harmony with the principles of the world any more than I am. My desire is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect their minds from being reinfected with deceit, fear, and selfishness from the evil one. They are not in harmony with the world, even as I am not in harmony with it. Settle their minds so fully and completely into the truth that nothing can ever move them from it. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world to be your ambassador, to reveal the truth about you, so I have sent them into the world to be our ambassadors to reveal the truth about us. I have committed myself completely, holding nothing back, in order to bring them the only antidote to sin through which they might be fully restored to your original ideal for mankind. My heart's desire is not for them alone. My heart also longs for those who will accept the remedy they spread, that those who accept the remedy will be fully restored to the original, your original ideal and will be in complete unity, Father, just as you and I are in complete unity in all things. May they also be in unity with us so that the selfish world may see the power of healing truth I have brought and know that you have sent me. I have given them the full truth about you, your methods, principles, and character that you may, that you gave me, that they may be in complete harmony and unity as we are, my character reproduced in them and your character flowing out from me. May they be restored to complete unity, practicing only your methods so that the world will know that you sent me as the healing solution and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you gave me to instruct and heal, to be with me wherever I am, and to see my unveiled glory, the glory that comes from your love, the glory of being one with you before the world was created, perfect and righteous Father. Though the selfish world believes all sorts of lies about you, and therefore does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. They hate me because they prefer their lies about you to the truth, but I have made you known to them in order to dispel the lies about you that Satan has spread, the lies that prevent them from knowing you. I will keep making you known, for this is the only healing solution, the truth about you which dispels the lies, restores trust, and results in the love you have for me being reproduced in them. Then the infection of selfishness will be removed, and my character of selfish love will be restored within them. What did you hear in the prayer? Did you hear him trying to influence the father to do something that the father wasn't interested in? Or does it sound like Jesus was communicating with a trusted friend about the completion of their joint operations? Yeah, that's really what the prayer is about. It's not this intercessory thing that we're often taught from the penal view. Wednesday's third paragraph, in Wednesday, we're going to jump to Wednesday. In the third paragraph, it says, what is apostasy? How would you describe it? Oh, excuse me. It says, at the same time, we know that according to the book of Revelation, there is a great apostasy among those who profess the name of Christ, and that in the last days, many false Christians will unite with each other and, and with the state in order to bring about persecution graphically described in Revelation 13. So what is apostasy? How would you describe apostasy? Great apostasy in the church. Why would you describe it? Is apostasy primarily primarily core about not holding the right doctrinal understanding of things. 
or is the core apostasy not being true to Jesus and not representing God correctly in the way we conduct ourselves and treat other people? That we take the name of Christ upon ourselves and we act like Satan and represent Satan's methods in how we treat people. What do you think the core apostasy is? Well, how many read the article this week by William Johnson in Spectrum magazine? Anybody read that article this week? William Johnson, for those who don't know, is a lifelong Seventh-day Adventist, retired some years ago, was the editor of the Review magazine, which is the flagship magazine of the church for many, many years. So he's a, uh, what would be considered one of the bulwark, you know, persons within the Adventist church. And he wrote this article entitled, Time to Speak Out. He opens with this. We have come to a Luther moment for Seventh-day Adventists. Speaking of Martin Luther. I do not say for the SDA church. He said for Seventh-day Adventists. Not for the SDA church. Because the church at its highest levels is the problem. The speaking out must come at the level of the individual. The member who, along with others, is the church. And later he writes, But I am not alone in my distress over my beloved church. If my concerns were only mine, I would be happy to dismiss them as the trepidations of an aging brain, of aging brain cells. But they are not. I could list the names of Adventist greats, past and present, who feel as I do. All are household names. All, speak, all people are respected for their integrity. Just over a week ago, one of them emailed me, pouring out his heart, titling the message, Dismay. He wrote, We have not communicated in a long while, but madness has not stopped growing. I have to confess that I have now given up on hoping and thinking that the central leadership team at the general conference can be brought to turn around and think differently and to allow the bomb of Gilead to bring the much-needed healing into our church. Instead, they are tearing us apart. For, For I think this is by, and it is a blank, for I think this is by design brought on by a much corrupted and ill-guided theology. I pray every day for the church, but I don't know how much further God will allow this to slide. And then the article continues, Johnson says, How sad. Here is a renowned leader, one who has given his whole life to building up the Seventh-day Adventist Church, now in retirement, dealing with profound dismay at what is happening. And what is happening? Do you all know? What's the issue here? It's not about women's ordination, guys. It's not. It's about the methods being employed to enforce one side of the argument. And the methods being employed is authoritarian. It's not present the truth in love and leave people free, which are the biblical methods. Okay? It is a top-down authoritarian attempt to order and then, and then punish people in various ways who don't go along or comply. This is coercive measures. Now, let me tell you how the Adventist church was set up so you understand. It was set up precisely with local authority. Church membership is in a local individual church. There are local conferences and local unions who own the properties of the church, not the central command general conference. They actually have no authority and no power at all. It was set up this way because truth is unfolding. And how does truth of any kind, medical truth, scientific truth, theological truth, Think about how the Reformation began. Think about how scientific knowledge comes forward. The scientific knowledge, think about germ theory for a minute. 
Did germ theory come along because one day all the doctors in the world woke up and go, whoa, there's something, microbes, microscopic things we can't see called germs that cause infection. Is that how it happened? Or did a couple of people like Louis Pasteur and Lister come along with their idea that there's something we can't yet see that is causing an infection and they came up with sterilization and these techniques which were rejected by the medical community for, for several decades. But what happened, the truth, if it's true, becomes more and more evident and it slowly spreads among people until it becomes accepted. And so our church was organized knowing this is how truth works so that when a new truth comes along in a particular individual, they share it with their church. And if it's truthful, that church may will accept it and that church shares it in their conference and that conference may over time accept it and that conference shares it in its union and its union into its division. And over the course of years, maybe decades, like with the germ theory, it spreads to the unions of the, of the world church and then... And after it spread to the preponderance of the Union of the World Church, in general conference session every five years, there is an update in, in what the whole world church concludes to be a way of seeing things. That's how truth spreads. But, and that's the way it was designed, to allow truth to grow into the system. But instead now what's happening is trying to reverse this structure and have a top-down authoritarian papal-type system where you have truth as a central, or, central group of people, a body, a committee, an individual, and they get to dictate to everyone else and you can't think outside the box because if you go outside the box that people on high have said is not truth, then you get compliance officers coming, you get lose your job, you get put out of the fellowship or something like this. And it shuts down and obstructs the advancement of truth. And that's what people are protesting because there's a group of people in the central committee that are trying to, uh, uh, to bring about this type of structural change that is antithetical to how God operates. And they're doing it, not, and I'm going to tell you, look, and now I've shown you the methodology and then and, and the damage of doing that. Now understand the motive. The motive is fear, not love. When we love people, we present the truth, but we leave them free. But we're afraid, afraid for the corruption of the institution, afraid for false doctrines, afraid that, that, that people who think different than us will get in afraid that women will one day be in office uh, above us and we might have to answer to a woman who's the president of the conference, afraid that we have to take measures to coerce and control. And that's what's driving this. Understand that fear is the primary motivation of the carnal nature. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. fear. These are antithetical. It's like a seesaw. The more love you have, the less fear-driven you are. The more fear-driven you are in your decision-making, the less love-driven you are. This week, one of our longtime friends and supporters of this ministry, who attends a church in Kentucky, was disfellowshipped from his church. He emailed us. They had a church business meeting, and he has been sharing our materials there for, for some time. And the pastor was significantly opposed to this view. Uh, basically brought him up on charges of heresy before the church. The vast majority of the people who voted to disfellowship have never reviewed the material. Doesn't, doesn't understand or know what we teach. But trusted the pastor to do their thinking for them. And the pastor says it's heresy. Well, for if the pa- this is authoritarian worldview. If the Pope says it, then who are we to question it? If the pastor says it, who are we to question it? The pastor's reviewed it. He's made the judgment. We just have. And so they voted in support of the pastor to disfellowship this person from their membership. Good for him. Good for him for standing up for the truth. Maybe it's to get some people searching for themselves. That's an excellent thing. So I was reading this morning in the book, Great Controversy, about Martin Luther. I want to read a few paragraphs about Martin Luther. Page 148. Charge after charge 
was hurled against Luther as an enemy of the church and the state, the living and the dead, clergy and laity, councils and private Christians. With such weapons, the advocates of of truth in every age have been attacked. Notice that, with advocates of truth in every age have been attacked. The same arguments are still urged against all who dare to present in opposition of a, of in opposition to established errors, I love that, established errors, okay, the plain and direct teachings of the word of God. They will accuse and say, who are these preachers of the new doctrine? Those who desire the popular errors. They are unlearned, few in number, and of poor of a poorer class, yet they claim to have the truth and to be the chosen people of God. They are ignorant and deceived. How greatly superior in numbers and influence is our church? How many great and learned men are among us? How much more power is on our side? This is the critics. Look at all the people's words, all the theologians, all the people with degrees, all the, the doctors and lawyers and so forth and so on. Who are these people? Farmers? uneducated, didn't go to seminary. How are they going to know the truth? Psychiatrists, yeah. (laughs) Continue on with the quote. These are the arguments that have have a telling influence upon the world, but they are no more conclusive now than in the days of the Reformer. The Reformation did not, as many suppose, end with Luther. It is to to be continued to the close of the world's history. Luther had a great work to do in reflecting to others the light which God had permitted to shine upon him, yet he did not receive all the light which was to be given to the world. From that time to this, new light has been continually shining upon the scriptures, and new truths have been constantly unfolding. And new opposition has been constantly opposing. And we are still in the Reformation, folks. In my view, at least the truth for today, and I think it's the final piece of the Reformation that the Lord is waiting for, is for us to finally throw off the imperial law construct, the idea that God's law functions like human law, just a system of of rules with no inherent consequence that requires the divine um, judge to oversee and enforce and inflict punishment for rule breakers. To throw that whole idea out, that's Roman, that's pagan, that's earthly, that's sinful, and come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and all that in them is. Worship our creator God whose laws are the laws upon which all reality are built. And harmony with those laws are for the good of all his creatures. And as we harmonize with those, we experience healing and restoration and unity and and oneness. It's a call to call people back to that, that creator worship. This is the final piece. And I will tell you, when you present this view, hearts that love truth resonate. They feel freedom. Finally, they're out from under the fear. They can live for God and live holy lives with a sense of joy and peace. But those who like that imperial view become angry and hostile and they use the methods of coercion and disfellowship because they can't actually stand up to the truth. This is what happened with Luther. If you read the whole description there about Luther, those who argued against Luther would not let him speak. They argued for the emperor to not let him come to the Diet of Worms, to make him stay in Wittenberg because they did not want him there because they knew that his arguments would be persuasive. Don't listen. I can't tell you how many times that people have been critical of what we teach won't let me come speak. They don't want to let, the, let both sides... I'm perfectly happy to let somebody with an alternate view present their view, present my view, 
and then reason it out together and let the weight of evidence have the day because truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing. We lose no truth. See, people who have germ theory, they don't worry about people trying to argue there is no such thing as germs. You just made that up. Okay, let's, let's, let's research that together. Let's have that. Tell me your evidence. Show me. They're not afraid of that because they know once you actually bring the evidence in, it crushes that other view. But when you have a view that doesn't rest on evidence, then you have to have to resort to authority, to to um, credentials, to office. I'm the president of the conference. I have got a degree in theology. I have studied this for 30 years. It doesn't matter. What's the evidence? What's the truth? Monday's lesson. We'll jump back to Monday's lesson. First paragraph, it says, Jesus prays next for his disciples who are, in the gr- who are in grave danger of losing their faith in him in the days ahead when he, Jesus, will no longer be with them in the flesh. Thus, he commits them to the care of his father. What would threaten the faith of the disciples? What about them and their situation and circumstances made their faith in Jesus vulnerable? Lies. What lies? Lies about his mission. Exactly. They misunderstood. They thought he was here to set up an earthly kingdom. Still, you see them vying for who's going to be the greatest. Can I have the left and the right? Uh, Peter whips out a sword. I mean, right up to that weekend, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest uh, in, in his kingdom when he comes. They still have this temporal kingdom version in their mind in many ways. Could we argue that that none of them had yet been converted, truly converted? Well, Jesus, depending on which translation you read, did say to Peter uh, when they said, oh, you all run away. Peter says, not me, Lord. He says, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. But when you're converted, feed my sheep. So some versions actually say that to him. And and so I, I actually think that's correct because what is a genuine conversion? The heart heart change. And so uh, Peter in the upper room, when he said to Jesus, no, everyone may run, but not me, Lord. Was Peter lying to him? If he'd been on a lie detector, would he pass it? 100% sincerity meant every word he said. Because he wasn't lying, because he was sincere, does that mean Jesus could trust him? Get your mind around that. Many people miss this in human relationships. They miss this in relationships where somebody has got an issue in their character and they may have done wrong and mistreated somebody in a relationship and then afterwards, I'm so sorry, I promise I'll never do it again. And you pick up on their sincerity. They really mean what they say. Peter meant what he said. But you still can't trust him. Why? Here's the deal. Peter loved Jesus, didn't he? But he still loved himself more. Thus... As long as things were good, he wasn't threatened. He's right there by Jesus. But when he personally got threatened, you're one of them, aren't you? Had to protect self. Protect self. Throw Jesus under the bus. Protect self. Still loved himself more. When you're converted, when you have died to self, and you love me more than yourself. And that's what we see after the resurrection on the beach, that conversation. Do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, you know. He's no longer had that self-confidence and so forth. He'd surrendered. That's when he went out and wept bitterly. In human relations, same thing. I've, people would come to see me about counseling all the time. They want, I, I, I want to know if I can trust somebody. People have been exploited, abused, mistreated in the past, and they have trouble trusting. I want to know if I can trust them. They say, in relationship, in order to have somebody you can trust, there, there's four things. One, the person must love you more than themselves. If they don't love you more than themselves, then in time they'll betray you to protect themselves. Two, they have to have a certain level of maturity. They have to be mature have self-governance. 
So you may have a six-year-old child who really does love you, and that child, if they saw you in danger, they'd run out in harm's way to protect you. They'd put themselves in danger for you. They love you more than self. But you wouldn't give them your paycheck to take to the bank for you. <laughs> They're not mature enough to handle life's responsibilities. They're going to let you down in many, many ways that you can't trust them still. So you have to have love you more than self. They have to have a certain level of maturity. And then the third, they have to have wisdom. You may have somebody who loves you more than self. They really do. They have self-governance, but they are very penal, legal, and they don't have wisdom of how God's laws work. And so they become very authoritarian and rules-oriented in the way they treat you. And they're doing it because they love you and they see you disobeying and they want you to be kept in line so they use coercive measures on you. But they're not doing it because they, they, they really want to control you. They're trying to protect you from eternal damnation. They're not mature. Excuse me, they're not wise in God's ways. That's the third thing. Love you more than self, certain level of self-governance, maturity, and wisdom on how reality works. And the fourth thing, you have to have personal experience with that person to evaluate and come to know they have those things. And then trust can be established. And Jesus, of course, demonstrates all of those. He loves us more than self. He absolutely has maturity, and he absolutely has perfect wisdom. The question is, do you have enough experience with him? Life eternal, they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now sent. Do you have enough personal experience with him that you know he has those things so that you can trust him? And another word for trust, faith. So they were struggling because they had many misunderstandings about the what was going to happen, and when it didn't fit their expectations, then they began to have doubts. Was this the one? We thought this was the one. Is this the one? And remember, they didn't even hear him when he predicted his death on multiple occasions. But somebody did. If you read, and I'm not going to read it to you, Matthew 27, 62 to 65, those who crucified him went to Pilate and asked for a guard to put on the, because they remember he predicted his resurrection even though the apostles seem to have forgotten. The enemies, he was, it was out there enough that his enemies knew that he said this. Right? Yeah. In the lesson, it says, in the last paragraph, second, uh, last sentence, the second paragraph, it says, that is why Jesus needed, needs to intercede for them, that the evil one will not defeat them. This is well said. Hooray! Notice, in this description... With whom is Jesus interceding? With the evil one, so that he will not prevail against them. This is exactly, he, the Father, and the Spirit are interceding against, and in multiple places. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, uh, in um, Genesis chapter 3, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The woman is a metaphor for the people of God, the church. And so, after human beings sinned, our hearts would naturally align with fear and selfishness. We would be aligned and, confeder- and confederated with, with Satan, except God's spirit is working in our heart to give us a desire for something better, to woo, to draw, to, to give us a conviction, to, to, to put a disruption between a unity with evil. And, and that's God's interceding in our hearts. He also intercedes with principalities and powers of darkness. We see the hedge of protection around. We see it in Elijah and many other places in Scripture. And most importantly... Through Jesus Christ, he intervened or interceded in the natural outcome of what sin does to a human being. The natural outcome of what sin does is it destroys the sinner resulting in their death. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the scripture says. So he altered the outcome. He came, partook of our humanity, and altered the outcome. We have a new path we can go now because of Jesus Christ. 
which is different than the penal view because the penal view says that he, became, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be declared the righteousness of God. But that's not scripture. We actually become the righteousness of God. The actions of the atonement are worked out in the heart minds of the believers in Jesus Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. As I was studying, I thought it was actually very beautiful. He says, keep them in your name. This is what protects us. In your name? Keep them in your name, which in that society meant character. So what saves us is for us to be in his character and have his character in us. That's exactly right. That's what the name meant. And when you pray in the name of Jesus, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? To use that syllable at the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. Now if I pray in the name of Jesus. To pray in the name of Jesus means to pray with a heart and or character motivated and, and desiring the same things Jesus was motivated and desired, which is ultimately glorifying God in our actions and conduct. That's the, the motive there of Christ, to reveal the truth about God and say what is right of God. Wow, time has gone by fast, hasn't it? There's a whole bunch of stuff in the lesson notes we're not going to get to, which I think was, was uh, uh, I think would stimulate some more thoughts. So our notes are going to be posted online here in a day or so. I encourage you to check those out. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are our creator God who built all reality to operate in harmony with you and the great principles of love, truth, and freedom. We ask that your spirit will take the achievements of Christ, reproduce it in us, renew us, that we can leave here being lights, shining brightly for you in this world. And we ask that your agencies will go and and move the opposition out of the way and, and open avenues for this message to go forward so that the world can be lighted and we can see you soon, Lord. In your holy name, amen.